pray with me, Father in heaven. Enable this truth to sink deep within our souls that you are God and that you are here. And I pray, Father, that we would desire so to follow you that our minds even now would be attentive to your word that we might follow you. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in each mind, in each heart, in the affections of each one of us, that we would understand your word, that we would seek it and that we would love it. So, Father, I pray that you would cause your spirit to do this work in us, that your word would be that which it is, alive. The very word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 1. First Peter in chapter 1, I want to read uh, verses 13 through 16. First Peter chapter 1, please. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This is the word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to be talking this morning a bit on this notion of holiness, God's and ours, I will not, of course, be able to exhaust it even as I work through First Peter. Uh, so let me give you some summer reading if you are interested in this particular uh, subject. First, a book by a man named J.C. Ryle called Aptly Holiness. It was written in 1879. Uh, it's still in print. You should always pay attention to a book that was written in 1879 and it's still in print. People are still purchasing it. It's a series of sermons uh, on holiness. Uh, the second book I would recommend is a book uh, that I, I don't think is in print anymore, or maybe Clay tells me under a different title. So go to the bookstore and ask him about that. Uh, but it was previously uh, titled Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer. Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer. Uh, it basically is a very good rewrite of J.C. Ryle's holiness. Uh, and, um, but it's, it's very good. Thirdly, a book that you probably own and I pray have read, uh, given our relationship with Jerry Bridges, but Jerry Bridges' book called The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, it's a classic uh, in this, and uh, Jerry's been here so many years now and, and uh, sold that book, I hope, to you, and I hope you not only bought it, but you've read it and reread it. Uh, a second book that he published in the 90s called The Discipline of Grace that we use for uh, Sunday school classes, also a good one on this this holiness. So pick one or all of them and uh, enjoy yourself this summer. If you're looking for something to read, they will bless you. Um, and most assuredly, this sermon will make much more sense even after you've read, uh, you've read those. But uh, I asked a question a couple of weeks ago before I was interrupted by a wedding. And um, not rudely interrupted, it was a nice interruption, but, uh, but interrupted me nonetheless. But um, uh, I asked a question. Uh, and the question was this, what is to be our response to this great salvation? And I asked that question because I think that that's the question Peter is answering in these verses. 
Um, it falls out of that. In the first 12 verses, uh, Peter describes this great salvation to us. As you remember, we said that this great salvation is from God, and it has a pastness and a presentness and a futureness to it. The pastness is that he has already, if you're a believer in Christ, caused us to be born again. And this came from his election of us and all of that. But he's caused us to be born again, pastness, something has taken place uh, in our lives uh, to free us from the penalty of sin, forgiveness. And the presentness of this salvation is that he's caused us to be born again into a living hope. And the futureness of this salvation is that we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, that's being guarded by God's power through faith, and it will be revealed in the last time. Also, in the context of the presentness of this salvation is the fact that even now we are experiencing various trials which bring with them real grief, real sadness, real difficulty, real sorrow, real pain. Uh, and that is part of the presentness of our salvation because as our faith in the midst of those trials are being te- is being tested, then we're actually receiving the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. So the pastness of our salvation is to be freed from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin having been taken by Christ, and now we're recipients of that work, having been caused to be born again. And the presentness of that is what we'll talk about today, and that is being rid of or experiencing the lessening of the power of that sin in our life, all in anticipation of the future of this great salvation, which is being free completely from the presence of sin. All right? That's this great salvation. And so Peter lays that out in in these first 12 verses. And then beginning in verse 13, he changes, as we said, moods. Verses 1 through 12, we found all the verbs, or the verbs being in the indicative mood, meaning giving us statements of fact, that which is true about us. And then beginning in verse 13, we find this change of mood to the imperative, now commanding us, two very specific things commanding us. First, to set our hope fully, in verse 13, to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's command number one. And then command number two, we find in verse verses 14 and 15, that we are to be holy. So, the answer to the question, what is to be our response to this great salvation, is twofold. One, that we're to set our hope fully upon this grace that's to be brought to us at the coming of Christ. And secondly, that we're to be holy. That's the one we'll take up today. Two quick observations before we begin. First, I mentioned two weeks ago, and my dear... uh, friend, Mike Shu mentioned last Sunday as well, this, this notion of indicatives and imperatives. And I, I know this is early and all that, and school's out, and if you're new to us, don't think I'm that big of a nerd. I am. But, but, uh, but it's important to keep all of this straight, because if we don't, we miss Christianity entirely. The indicative always comes first, then the imperative. That is to say, we first experience what God does for us to change us, And then we respond. Then the commands come. If we get them backwards, then we end up doing so that we can become a Christian. But that's wrong. We do, that is we obey, because we have become Christians. Don't get those wrong. If you do, you'll miss everything that Peter has to say. In fact, you'll miss the whole Bible. 
It's first what God does to change us, and then secondly, how we respond to that. The response comes second. Indicative first, statement of fact, then um, what we're commanded to do. Don't, 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 don't get those backwards. Secondly, second observation, that this second command to be holy follows logically on the heels of the first command that we're to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us at the coming of Jesus. Okay? The second command follows logically on the first. By that I mean this. If we have set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus, verse 13, first command, what that means is our heart's desire is to receive this great inheritance that he talked about in the opening verses. To receive this great inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade. And that great inheritance really is bringing us into and bringing to us fully and completely the glory of God. That everything would reflect him. Everything that we see in others, and everything that we see around us, and everything that we see in ourselves. In other words, our destination, ultimately, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. That we reflect him. And so, when Peter commands us then, alright, if this is true of you, I want you to set your hope on it. And what you're setting your hope on is a day will come when everything will reflect Jesus. That you yourself even will be conformed to the image of Christ. That you'll be done away with sin completely. That you will reflect him and his character and his goodness and his purity. He says, that's your hope. Now then, if that really is your hope, it means you understand something. You understand the devastation of sin. You understand the misery of sin. You understand that sin can never satisfy you. That sin only exists to destroy you. And thus, you understand that. And so your hope is to be done with it completely so that everything reflects Jesus. And so, logically then, if that's your hope now, then be holy. John uses this same logic, for instance, in 1 John and chapter 3. In verse 1, he writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So, John's on the same note that Peter's on because in verse 14, Peter begins by saying, as obedient children. So he's addressing those who belong to the Father as children. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, that is Jesus, of course, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. That when Jesus returns, when he's revealed in his fullness to us at his return, that we'll see him and we will be like he is. That is, in beholding him at that moment, we'll be transformed to be conformed into his image. That's what Peter is saying. Set your hope fully on this grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John's saying the same thing. And then in verse 3 he goes on and says, And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if that's really your hope, if that's really your heart's desire to be rid of sin and to reflect Christ, then both Peter and John are saying, now get on with it now. To whatever degree you possibly can, get on with it now. Don't embrace sin any longer. Get rid of it. For instance, if, if you met a little boy and you said, what's the desire of your heart? And he says, I want to be a baseball player. What would you expect him to be doing in the summer? Playing baseball, I suppose. If you met a little kid and said, what's your heart's desire? I want to be a singer. What would you expect that kid to be doing? Singing. If you met another person, what's your heart's desire? I want to be an artist. What would you expect that, people, that person to be doing? Art. I mean, that's their heart's desire. That's their desire. And so Peter and John are saying, listen, if, if, if you want to reflect Christ and you know that day is coming and so that's your hope, now get on with it now. Logically, if that's your hope, get on with it now. Now, if I could stretch my little illustration just so that you don't get too discouraged before all this begins because I know if you're following me, you're thinking, yes, I know that is my heart's desire, but I know I'm not as holy as I should be. If that's your thought, you're tracking well. But remember, you might meet a little boy who wants to be a baseball player when he grows up who isn't practicing nearly as hard as he should because he's lazy. There's other things that need to be overcome before he can manifest the desire of his heart. That's probably true. I don't know about you. I know that's true for me. But though I can mouth the words, my hope is in the grace that's to be brought at the revelation of Jesus when I'm finally conformed to his image. And on a good day when I'm thinking, I'm saying, yes, that's, I, I want to be holy, yet you might not see that holiness expressed all the time uh, in the context of my own life because there are things yet to be overcome. But they're being overcome. That's the good news. Okay, logically, this second command uh, flows uh, from the first. Now, what then is this holiness? Uh, most generally, when we speak of, of holiness, we're talking about that which is separate, that which is different, unique in some sense. But, but it has a twist, because when we speak of holiness, it isn't something that's just unique and just different and set apart from all the others. But it's set apart for a particular purpose, a particular devotion. And that particular devotion is to God. So in something, when someone is holy, it's setting that thing, setting that person apart so that it can be fully devoted to God. If you read through the Old Testament, we find, for instance, that the Sabbath day is to be holy. What does that mean? God meant that you're to take that one day and set it apart, make it different from the other six, and devote it in a different way, in a special way, to God. There were priests in the Old Testament who were holy, or to be holy, meaning that they were separated from all the other people and devoted entirely in the course of their life to serving at the temple. There were, there were places that were holy. There was the holy place in the temple, the most holy place in the temple. There, there was a basin that was holy and water that was holy and all that stuff. And what did that mean? It, it meant that it was separated from everything else and devoted to God. Thus, it was to be holy. And so that which is holy is that which is separated out, taken out, removed from evil, removed from sin, and devoted to purity, to the perfection of God. God is holy. He's different. He's unique, obviously. He's, he's different. He's set apart. He's different than any other being. He's, he's uniquely supreme. He's uniquely supreme uh, in, his, in his person. 
because he's self-existent. There's no one else like him. He's, he's different than everyone else. He's self-existent. He's self-dependent. He doesn't depend upon anything or anyone else for his life. He exists. God is. That's why the scripture can emphasize so strongly that his name is holy. Because his name, you remember the name that he gave Moses to give to the people in Egypt, his name is simply I am. It means I exist. And I exist apart from everything else. And I am whoever it is that I am. I'm not dependent upon anyone else to define me. I define myself, God says. I get my existence from no one other than myself. So that makes him unique. But he's not only unique, but if you can follow this, He's set apart and devoted to himself. Because he's God. And so he's utterly devoted to who he is as God, which is perfection, which is perfect purity. And so we can even use this word holy as a prefix for all of God's other attributes just to remind us of the majesty and the perfection of every other attribute. So we speak of the justice of God, we could call it the holy justice of God. It's holy justice, it's right and true, and everything is perfect about it. It's never, ever wrong. It's different, it's unique than any other kind of justice because there's, there's no impurity, imperfection in it at all. His love is holy. It's always right and good. It's always rightly applied. There's never any imperfection in his love at all. His wisdom is holy. There's never any imperfection in what God knows. He always knows that which is true and always does that which is right. We see the holiness of God manifested in his law in the Old Testament. We see the holiness of God manifested in his judgment against sin. And sometimes we read the Old Testament and we just go, right? Why? Because we don't get the holiness of God. We just say, well, God, can't you just cover that up? Can't you just not annihilate those people? You got them in the last chapter. (laughs) You know? Can there be any left? But what we're seeing there, in full living color, is the holiness of God against sin. While God is gracious to forgive sinners... He never does it apart from judging sin. There is no forgiveness apart from the judgment of God against sin. That's why in the Old Testament, God's holiness and his holy judgment against sin was shown in the killing of animals. Their blood to substitute for the blood of the one making the sacrifice. Their life for the one making the sacrifice. But we know that that didn't suffice. That was just preliminary. That was just a symbol to look at, to say something bigger, better is coming. And of course the one who came is Jesus. It's only by the blood of Christ, therefore, that our sins are forgiven. God doesn't sweep it under the rug because his justice is holy. It must be met. And his love is holy as well. And so though he forgives us, he doesn't do, us by, doesn't do it by, by, by sacrificing his holiness. He does it in the context of his holiness. That's the marvel, the majesty of the wisdom and power of God. So we see the holiness of God in Jesus. For in him we see utter perfection. We see one who perfectly loves. And we also see one who perfectly hates. Because he perfectly loves that which is good. And that which God loves, 
And he perfectly hates that which is evil. But he does it perfectly and purely, no imperfection at all in him. And we see, of course, the holiness of God in the cross of Christ, as I just mentioned, because there we see God's hatred against sin, his holy judgment. But we also see his holy love that causes him to pour out his wrath upon another, that we might be loved, that we might be saved. You see all of that, the holiness of God. And now Peter comes to us and says, since this one who has called you is holy, now here's the command, be holy. What does that mean? Well, it means, of course, that we're to be set apart from evil, from sin, and we're to be devoted to God. We're to be set apart from sin in the context of our lives, to be removed from that and be devoted to God. I, before I get to that, let me say this. The question that comes next is, in what sense, therefore, I love watching your faces because you're thinking, and I appreciate that, because this is one of those very thoughtful kind of sermons. You've got to follow this, because if we miss it, we, we can get really messed up. The question is, in what sense are we to be holy as God is holy? In what sense can Peter command this kind of holiness? Because you and I both look at ourselves, we both look in the mirror, we both look into our hearts, we look at each other and we realize there's a lack of holiness expressed in the context of our lives. So is Peter just sort of shooting in the wind here? I mean, is, is, is this something really we need to pay attention to? Or is this just sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff? What's the deal? And the, and the answer is that there's two senses in which God commands us to be holy. One sense... Peter is assuming is already true of them. And one sense isn't. Okay? The sense that Peter is assuming is true of them is what we might call positional holiness before God. What isn't true of them is what we might call progressive holiness. Let me explain. Bike preached without a tie last week. I know these young guys are trying to teach me something. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, but I told him to wear a tie, but he just doesn't listen. Um, he wore a coat. That was his compromise. I tried to tie it around his neck. Um, <laughs> the, um, when we speak of positional holiness, the scripture tells us that without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Of course that's true. How can anyone stand in the presence of a holy God unholy? When we think of that, we, we realize that's what the scripture speaks when it speaks of God being a consuming fire. It really does take our breath away to think of his holiness. I mean, Isaiah, in the call to worship I read out of Isaiah 6, saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he saw the holiness of God, and, and you know his response. It's as if he was going to explode in himself until he was cleansed. That was his positional holiness. You see, there's a cleansing that takes place because of Christ that enables us to stand in the presence of God. 
It's that positional holiness that you and I stand before God legally, if you will, rightly before him, holy. Not because of our holiness, but because of the holiness of Christ. Uh, for instance, uh, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul writes to the church just like that. He says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That little word sanctified, that little word saint, is the word for holy. Uh, to be sanctified, really, if the word weren't so ugly, we would say means to be holified. It means to be considered holy. And so Paul's writing to this group of people in this sense of positional holiness, saying, you're holy before me. And, and that's amazing to us, isn't it? I mean, to think about the fact that in that sense we stand before God holy. And we know it's not our holiness, so whose is it? It's the holiness of Christ. When we trust in him, his holiness covers us so that we can stand in the presence of God. That's why we say we trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We don't trust in our own works. We don't trust in our own merit. We don't trust in our own goodness. We trust only in the merit and the goodness of Christ. It's his holiness. When we pray in Jesus' name, we say, I'm coming to you, Father, not in my own name, but in the holy name of Jesus, covered by the holiness of Jesus. That's the only way I have a right to stand in the presence of God, in the holiness of Christ, positional holiness. But Peter says, all right, that's true. You're Christians, thus you're holy in that sense. Now live it out. Now live it out. You see, the goal of your salvation is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, live it out. Yes, a day will come when you will see him as he is, and you will be like him. But don't wait. Get on with it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 is a great expose, a great, a great passage on our salvation, how it is that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and how it is that God in his mercy made us alive, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, so that none of us can boast. You know that passage. But verse 10 of that says this, for, that is, all that salvation took place, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. You see, it isn't just, oh, I get to be saved and now I just wait. That'd be horrible. Because our heart's desire now is to be conformed to the image of Christ. He says, okay, get on with it. I'm leaving you in this present tense of your salvation, in the midst of life's trials, in the midst of life's difficulties, to prove your faith, so you keep living by faith, and these fiery trials are going to burn away all that isn't true, all that isn't faith, and you're going to grow in holiness in the midst of this. And so Peter's saying, listen, get on with it. Be holy as I am holy. And we call this a progressive holiness because it does progress. It, it does grow. It's, it's what we call maturing as a Christian. How does one mature? What does it mean that you mature as a Christian? It means that you, you grow in holiness. You grow to be more like Jesus. I wish I had time. I don't. But I wish I had time to read you about five pages out of J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. Because he lists 12 characteristics of a holy person. 
It's chapter 2. The title of that chapter is Holiness. So you shouldn't miss it if you pick the book up. Um, And if it's signs of life, do what I do. Get a book off the shelf, sit there and read that part. (laughs) (laughs) And then buy it, you know, because you'll like it. You'll be so hooked at that point in time that you'll buy it. All right? Now, so here's my summary of these 12 things. Listen, just, just let them... Just let them flow over you. because, And not to burden you. Yes, this is, this is the goal. But to think, this is the expectation of God for us. This is the kind of person uh, we're becoming. See, we can be burdened by this and say, oh, woe is me, I'm not this. Do that for a while. That's called confession. Uh, but then, grab a hold of the hope to think, this is my calling. He says, he who called you is holy. So be holy in all you do. Be holy in all your conduct. And, and, and Ryle prefaces all of this by saying, this just scratches the surface. He says, I don't even know how to, how to say this. Let me just give you some things first. Holiness is the habit of being one mind with God. It's the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what he hates and loving what he loves, measuring everything in the world by the standard of his word, having the very mind of Christ about everything in the world. Number two, a holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will have a hearty desire to please God. In fact, will have a greater fear of displeasing God than the world. He'll be like David, who said, because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. A holy man, number three, will strive to be like Jesus. It will be his, his aim to forgive, to be unselfish, to walk in love, to be lowly-minded and humble. Number four, A holy man will follow after meekness, long-suffering, gentleness, patience, kindness. Be slow to talk of standing on his own rights. It's a 19th century way of saying, you're not a whiner. Number five, holy people are not self-indulgent, but rather follow after temperance and self-denial. Number six, holy people are full of love. Thus he will abhor all lying, slandering, backbiting, cheating, dishonesty, and unfair dealing, hurting people in any way. A holy man will follow after spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others. Like Dorcas, he will be one who is full of good works and deeds as she did. This isn't just talk, but it's love and action. Number eight, a holy man will seek purity of hearts. He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid all things that might draw him into it. He'll keep his heart free of temptation. Number nine, a holy man will follow after the fear of God, not the fear of his son who does what he does because he fears punishment, but the, I'm sorry, not the fear of his slave who does what he does because he fears punishment, but the fear of his son who desires to honor his father because he loves him. A holy man will follow after humility, esteeming others better than himself. A holy man will follow after faithfulness in all his duties and relations and life, in being good husbands and wives, good parents, good neighbors and friends, good places of business. Number 12, a holy man will be spiritually minded, attempting to set his affections on things above, not on earthly things. That's a holy person, one who's coming to be like Jesus. What Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, he says, it's like I'm giving birth to you because Christ is being formed in you. That's it. It's Christ being formed in us. John Owen, who is probably uh, the chief among all the old dead guys. Um, in fact, if you read 
In fact, if you want another thing to read, you could read John Owen's little work called uh, The Mortification of Sin. The 17th century guys had great titles. Mortification of Sin. If you don't want to read that, just read all the other books because everybody just sort of copies him. Any book on holiness will have read John Owen. But here's what Owen said about his own life. He said, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life are that universal holiness may be promoted in my own and in the hearts and ways of others. He says, my heart's desire unto God and chief design of my life. This is really what guides me. This is what, this is what propels me. This is what motivates me. He says, is this. Are that universal holiness may be promoted in my own life. That is, that I may be holy. And then he goes on to say, and also in the lives and ways of others. Meaning that he was conscious of the fact that his life impacted the lives of others. And his desire was that holiness just wouldn't be present in his life. That he, it wouldn't be just that he would love or be fair or be kind or be encouraging or be humble and all of that. But that those around him, by the influence of his own life, they too would find themselves, because of his witness, holy. Do you think like that? I had to catch myself. Do I think like that? When I'm sitting at home watching a game, am I thinking, how could I be holy here? And how could I motivate holiness in others? How can I not be self-indulgent? How can I be humble? How can I think of the interests of others better than my own? How can I be honest? How can I be pure in my thoughts and my actions? Do you think like that? As husbands and wives, do you think, how can I be a holy husband? Some wives are thinking, yeah. How can I be a holy wife? How can I esteem my spouse more highly than myself? How can I be concerned about fairness and rightness and goodness and purity and honesty? And how can I be encouraging and humble and all of that in the midst of this relationship as a parent? How can I be a holy parent? As someone working in the marketplace, how can I be a holy employee? How can I be a holy employer? How, how can I be so holy that someone might recognize Christ in me? How can I do that? See, that's what Peter is calling us to. And my question now is, do we have any hope uh, in this? And the answer, you know, I will give is Yes. Because when God commands, he supplies. The great prayer of St. Augustine was, command whatever you will, but grant what you command. God, you can tell me to do anything, but, but you got to know that if you tell me to do it, I can't unless you supply. So that supplies there. And I think we find it in, in these words of Peter. First of all, he says that this is our calling. It's our calling to be holy. And you know that when God calls, it's what we call an effectual call. God just doesn't dial us up and hope we answer. When God calls, it's an effectual calling. It works in the context of our lives. When Jesus knew Lazarus was dead, he called him and Lazarus came forth because the word of God always accomplishes that for which it is purposed. And so when God calls, he says, you've been called to be holy. And so the truth is we will be. God will work in us. Holiness, because he's, he's called us. That is our calling. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 
I love summers because I feel like I can preach forever. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7. Uh, the apostle writes, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. The NIV, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. The NIV has, but God has not called us for impurity, but to live a holy life. That's the sense there. That's why he's called us. That's the goal of our salvation. Don't miss it. Again, make sure you put the indicative first and then the command. But that's the way it goes. He's called us for holiness. And so, yes, there is hope. He's called us. Because when he calls us, that call works in us and the Holy Spirit comes to us and makes us to be his children. So Peter says, as obedient children, I want you to do this. We're children of God. And children are to bear a family resemblance. And so as children of God, we're to be known as his children and we're known as his children as we look like him. And so there's hope there. And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's rather blunt. But ignorance in scripture means this. It isn't that you're not smart. It isn't that you don't have a high IQ. It isn't that you're not even brilliant. But it's you have a godless mindset. That God is not supreme to honor. It would be like this. Let's say you're an employee, you work for a company, and you're standing by the water cooler, and the boss comes in and says, get back to work. And you don't. And then you say, I didn't know he was the boss. That's not what Peter's after here. It goes like this. You're standing by the water cooler. The boss comes in. You know it's the boss. And the boss says, get back to work. And you don't. That's ignorance, as Peter understands it. Because you're not giving honor to the very one you ought to give honor. Because you're thinking, he doesn't know what's best for me. She can't tell me what to do. What will make me happy right now, fulfilling my own passion, is to stand by the water cooler and not work. That's ignorance. It's the same kind of ignorance that Paul talks about in, first, in, in Romans chapter 1. Thinking themselves wise, they became fools. Why? Because they did not honor God as God or give him So there was a time in our lives when we were ignorant of the great supreme value of the holiness of God and who he is. But then Peter very kindly says, that was former. That's no longer true. It may feel still true. These thoughts may still run through my head. But he says, now remember, that's the old. Put on the new. Don't be any more conformed to live with these former passions. Get on with being holy. How do we do that? Well, most certainly by knowing the very word of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to the word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Through prayer. Ephesians chapter 3. The apostle says that he's praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. That is, make his home there and remodel everything on the inside. Most certainly by fellowship. Hebrews chapter 3 says that we're to encourage one another daily so that none of us has a hard heart. 
We need the encouragement of the fellowship. We need models of people who are living holy lives. We need people to challenge us. We need people to dis- discipline us and to correct us. We need people to whom we can confess our sins as we share together. Most certainly by effort. There's always the great question, well, who does this, the Holy Spirit or me? And the answer is, yes. The Holy Spirit is solely responsible for our new birth. Solely responsible for our new life within us. But as he works in us, then he commands us to take off the old and put on the new. To stop living an unholy life and live pure before God. And if you've been a Christian ten minutes, you know that's hard. It's a lifetime pursuit. It's a progressive holiness. It's denying all of that and believing that God is really right when he says, that won't help you, that won't satisfy, even though it seemed to have helped all these years and satisfied so much. you got to believe him. Take it off. and Say, no, 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 this is the way of holiness. Don't lie at that moment in time. But lies always worked before, right? Don't medicate, but that always worked before. Don't lose your temper, but that always got my way before. Right. Don't be greedy, but 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 but, but then I don't want to have anything. You see, put that aside. Effort. Lastly, this. It comes by way of behold, <clears throat> beholding Christ. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. those of you who are there know this is the word I gave my daughter when she was married and the guy she married to he's a good guy the apostle Paul writes and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit the apostle says there's a transforming that comes when we behold the glory of Christ, when we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Because you see, when we do that, we see the holiness of God. We see the glory of the Lord, the majestic holiness of God in Christ. And he says, when we behold him, when we see him, there's a transforming that takes place. It'll come completely when we see him at his return. That transformation will happen. But he says, don't wait till then. Fix your eyes upon him now, the very eye of faith, the very eye of your heart. Think about him. Meditate upon him. Think about Jesus. Now, God has been gracious to us because he's given us a visual of the holiness of Jesus. He's given us a visual of the great holy justice, the great holy love of God that was expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. He didn't wait until we could have the film. He gave it to us in bread and wine. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which has been given for you 
Behold me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this too to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, that is. Behold me. When you see this, you're to think of me. When you feel this, you're to think of me. When you smell this, you're to think of me. When you taste this, you're to think of me. What are we to think? We're to think of the holy justice of God. And it's to take our breath away. Because when we consider Jesus upon the cross, as he's outlined, as it's outlined for us in the scripture, we see there the judgment of God the violent judgment of God, the great wrath of God upon sin. We see it. When Jesus is being beaten, we realize all hell has broken loose. But there is nothing, it seems, that's holding it back. And when, we, when he dies and he experiences the forsakenness, the loneliness, the judgment of God, we, we feel that and we see that's God's hatred of sin. I, I too must have that same attitude about sin in me and then we also see the holy love of God as well for it was not our punishment that is our own personal experience but the punishment that was due us came upon him and he says behold me and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this command to be holy seems too great. It seems as if there's no way, but we trust that that which you've commanded you'll grant. We trust that you've called us. We trust that we're your children. We trust that this ignorance is former. We trust that you'll work in us. We trust even as we know your word, it'll penetrate. Even as we pray, you'll be faithful to answer. Even as we fellowship together, we'll grow. Even Even, Father, as we pursue holiness, you'll be gracious to help us. But, Father, even now I pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice for your purpose of enabling us to behold Jesus. Father, this bread and juice always stays bread and juice. We know it symbolizes him. But we pray that that symbol would bring us into his very presence by faith. And that we'd, we would feed upon him and be nourished by him. And our awareness of his presence and holiness would be with us and even in us. And that you would enable us, therefore, to be holy in all of our conduct. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. You realize your own unholiness. As Isaiah realized it as he stood before the Lord, you, you've been there. You know that. But then also that you're one who believes, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, which is freely as the savior of sinners, the one who is the very coal from the altar that comes and 
atones for our sin and cleanses us. You know that. You've experienced that. And you're one who, whose heart's desire is to live as becomes a follower of Christ. That is one who desires to be holy. If that's true of you, please come. These two sections down the aisle to my left. These two down the aisle. 